You're listening to Work Human Radio. And here's your host, Mike Wood. Welcome back to another edition of Work Human Radio, pioneered by Global Force. My name is Mike Wood. I am your host, and I'm glad that you've joined us for the second part of our three-part interview with Gary Hamill. Gary Hamill will be at Work Human 2019 in March in Nashville, and we hope to see you there. So what's Gary going to talk about in the second part of this interview? So this is a little bit of a mega episode. Uh, We have a lot of content in here, and we just were very fortunate to be able to pick Gary's brain. We're going to be talking about how companies are leveraging crowdsource pay, how employees are working together in a humanocracy instead of a bureaucracy, and what advice he has for leaders who want to move away from the traditional performance process that everybody hates, and they're looking for a different path forward. So if you want to hear the latest in what we can do in uh, organizations to help our employees, you are in the right place. So here is the second part of our interview with Gary Hamill and Sarah Payne. So if you go back to kind of a pre-bureaucratic world, a world of small, uh, you know, small uh, uh, craftsmen, tradesmen, um, where the average organization might have had four or five people. In that environment, everyone every day pretty much knew how the business was doing. You could, you know, the customers came across your threshold. You could hear the conversations. The people that you worked with were, you know, an arm's length away. You could talk to the boss or the owner every day, and he or he uh, would listen to your ideas, presumably. So what happened is organizations scaled up is that more and more, a greater and greater percentage of employees no longer had customer-facing roles. Uh, They no longer had direct access to the owners or the leaders in charge. And uh, and no longer did they know moment by moment how the business was doing. So in in a way it was, was, as as organizations grew, um, individuals lost the input that they needed to self-manage. Self-manage. They lost the inputs of, you know, how are we doing in the marketplace? What are our customers feeling? Um, You know, what are my colleagues around me doing? Am I really adding value? And so we substituted layers of managers to 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 direct uh, uh, employees and to substitute for that a lack of direct interaction with peers, uh, with with customers, and 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 with owners. So I think if you want to de-bureaucratize, we have to, in, in, in a sense, we have to kind of uh, go back to the future. So what I think uh, organizations are doing that are, that are trying to, to make this journey, uh, first, they're dividing large organizations into smaller units where you really do know your colleagues and you do feel collectively accountable for results in the way that a, a small entrepreneurial company would feel accountable, everyone would feel accountable for results. You reduce the number of these internal monopolies because, you know, it's, it's hard if, if I'm working in an operating unit and a large share of my costs are allocated and I don't actually have control over them and I'm not able to fire and hire internal service providers, that significantly erodes my sense of control. I am, I am no longer an entrepreneur. I'm no longer an owner. I'm now just an employee and, 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 and have little control over many of the critical decisions and the costs that are important to the business. So I think you have to divide large organizations into smaller pieces. You have to have real P&Ls where control comes from, uh, you know, being accountable uh, for end results rather than the control comes from 
you know, uh, layers of leaders telling you what to do. And to the question about compensation, compensation becomes really tied to marketplace outcomes. Um, again, at higher, and they're a bit on my mind because I just came back from a, a conference in China where we had 3,000 people there together learning from this new model. But uh, the uh, CEO of, of higher, Zhang Rumin, and that's Z-H-A-N-G and then R-U-I-M-I-N, Zhang Rumin, he says only with slight exaggeration, he says, we no longer pay our employees. Today, customers pay them. Because every employee's compensation is, as I said, directly linked to marketplace outcomes. There's a significant at-risk portion uh, to that compensation, depending on how you do. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, it's interesting, as you would know, over the last many decades, the idea of empowerment has been a kind of a, a recurring meme in uh, organizational uh, thinking. Uh, and yet, I would argue we've made almost no progress on that front. In fact, for sure, we have been going backwards. Um, if you look, for example, at uh, both uh, the European Workforce Survey, the American Workforce Survey, you find that in recent years, employees report having less control than they used to over both the work they do and how they do that work. And so despite empowerment being there as, as a hope, uh, the reality has been moving in the other direction. I was talking uh, a few weeks ago to, um, I'm going to have to look up his name to get the spelling, but uh, Jim Schnabe, I think it's S-N-A-B-B-E, Jim Schnabe, who was the co-CEO of the big German software company SAP and is now the non-executive chairman of um, Maersk the world's largest shipping line based in, 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 in Denmark. And Jim said that when he left SAP, the company had more than 50,000 KPI. And he said that, I can tell you, with no pride. He was, he was uh, uh, you know, disturbed by that fact. And, 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 and he would say, we thought that somehow if we could establish these synthetic measures, these internal targets, top down for everything, that somehow we could run the company by remote control. But we realized that's not true. You cannot predetermine the trade-offs. You cannot predetermine what's important for anybody to do on a given day. And in a sense, all of those KPIs, all of those kind of manufactured targets are a substitute for having small teams directly connected to markets and to customers with direct feedback from those customers that influence their P&L and their compensation. So I think, you know, that's part of how it's, it's going to have to change is that we have to uh, disaggregate our organizations, connect every employee in creative ways to customers and make their compensation dependent on their real value added. Um, that's a big change. The good news is that information technology now helps us uh, to do this. Uh, and uh, but it will be, I think, disconcerting for some because while people on the front lines can, you know, claim that they'd like more empowerment, just you know, uh, I think often they haven't really thought through what they're asking for because to be empowered means to be accountable, and to be accountable mm -hmm. means that your compensation is at risk, 
And so, you know, people who complain about the fact that they have very little authority and very little discretion and they live in this, uh, you know, in this uh, nexus of rules and procedures, at the same time, sometimes that's a little comforting that uh, if something goes wrong, you can always, you know, blame the boss. This is what you asked me to do. That uh, the lack of empowerment also means there's little you can blame me for. So uh, there's a lot of rethinking or a lot of mindset change that I think is required uh, on the part of people lower down in the organization about stepping up and, and, and starting to, to think like owners and think like entrepreneurs with the accountability that entails. Just as for senior leaders, there's a lot of mindset reengineering that has to go on as you think about your role less as uh, a decision maker and less as an enforcer and more as a mentor and an enabler. So a lot of learning uh, and a lot of growth, I think, is required on all parts for us to move be- beyond the old model. And this is sort of related, but have you seen any companies that are leveraging crowdsource pay? Basically, instead of having the manager determine what your contribution is and then what your bonus is, setting aside some payroll budget or variable pay that comes from the crowd, from your peers? Yeah, I've seen several organizations now that are doing this. So some years ago, I wrote about the largest uh, tomato processor in in the United States called Morningstar, uh, a company based uh, in the uh, San Joaquin Valley here in California. At Morningstar, employees negotiate their responsibilities with each other. They have about uh, 500 employees and they have no managers or supervisors at all. And uh, then at the end of the year, they, uh, the employees uh, appoint, they choose uh, 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 compensation councils across the company, quite a few of these, uh, that, uh, and you, you are able as, they don't call them employees, they call them colleagues, but as a colleague, you're able to go and present your uh, case of how you did this year against uh, the agreements you negotiated with your peers, and your peers get to comment on that. And then it is a, a, a group of your peers, a council of your peers, that decides how bonuses are allocated. Interesting yeah. idea, because a lot, of, a lot of our customers are looking at how to revamp their performance process. You know, you're talking about that some companies still do the force ranking, but a lot of companies just want to get rid of ranking and numbering and just really get people in the habit of asking for and giving feedback. So do you have any advice for leaders that are kind of in this boat where they're, they don't want to do the traditional performance process, but they're trying to find a path forward? I think you have to separate out two goals of performance management that often get uh, conflated. One is the goal of personal development, which requires coaching and understanding what my strengths and weaknesses are and what I can do to get better. And number two is making uh, a distribution of rewards or distributing rewards. Um, I think those things need to be quite separate. So at Gore, as super higher, the process of compensation is actually you know, fairly brutal. It is you know, definitely there's a competitive nature to it. Um, But it tends to produce the right, that competition tends to produce the right sort of behaviors. 
Because at Morningstar or Gore or some of these other very fat companies, what people will tell you is they spend no time competing for the scarce resource of promotion, and they spend all of their time asking, how do I add more value? Because in a system where my uh, where peers play a very important role in my compensation, uh, throughout the entire year, I have to think like an entrepreneur. Rather than thinking, well, I've negotiated my KPIs with my boss, and all I have to do is, is please him or her, I know that right. I am now accountable to a broad number of colleagues, and I can't I can't simply ignore any of them. And so I am competing to get myself onto the right projects, to get more skills, to put myself in a position to add more value. And at the same time, it really forces me to be more collegial because I can't safely just say to somebody, well, you know, that's really not my job. I'm not interested. I'm not going to help you out. So I think the compensation thing, um, again, you know, there are nuances. In, in some organizations, it may make more sense to have team rewards. Um, you know, it may make sense to have, uh, you know, kind of bands of, of bonuses or compensation that are fairly broad. But but uh, what I can tell you for sure is that if correlate if 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 compensation correlates very tightly with formal rank, you are going to have an organization that is not honest, where people are highly politicized. Uh, where a lot of top performers are going to go somewhere else rather than play the political game. So I think compensation has to correlate with real value. Um, you know, at higher, because they track, they have so many measures now tracking um, um, uh, individual performance. Uh, they can, for example, with a quality problem, they can track that from the customer all the way back to a single individual in the plant and say, this is where something went wrong. Now, that may be a system failure, and, and it may not be that individual. If you see a problem that you know, is endemic across many different people, you would, it wouldn't be one person's fault. But we are going to get better and better at being able to, to, to uh, tie individual performance to value creation. Um, and again, we have choices. You know, we, it doesn't have to be a hair trigger connection between performance and compensation, uh, many ways of kind of uh, preventing this from, from being seen as, you know, kind of a, a fairly brutal competitive uh, process. But I do think that link between individual performance and compensation has to become a lot more visible than it is. You know, I've, I've been a professor for many, many, many years and uh, for, for, for 36 years. And from the very beginning, the first time I walked into a classroom in 1983, I realized that at the end of that term, I'd have 60 students. Each one of them would give me a performance review. It would be anonymous. I would not know which student gave me which you know, review, which number. All of those uh, reviews would be uh, uh, available to every single person in the business school, other students, faculty alike, a matter of record, you could go look it up in the library, now it's digital. There was simply no place to hide from not doing a good job. And right. I think that's the, that's the way it should be. Um, and it's, you know, in school, there's no way to hide uh, and so on. But I think that does, that's, that's quite separate from uh, the process of, of having developmental conversations between leaders and employees, 
you know, making it clear to people where you have the opportunity to grow your skills and capabilities and get better and what that might look like for you and your job, where do you go next? So I think those compensate, those decisions have to be quite separate. And, and the good news is as you get more and more uh, customer data and peer data around performance, that becomes less and less a political conversation. Does my boss like me? Uh, you know, is there a personality conflict? And more and more just a factual conversation. And it actually then frees up uh, leaders to focus their energies on helping individuals grow personally, uh, people who have not done so well, giving them, you know, being very clear on what they can do to, to, to get better. So I think those processes have to be entirely distinct. And you talked about data, the importance of data in, um, you know, freeing up some of the time. But can you tell me a little bit about what impact technology can have on a work culture? You know, a lot of what you're talking about does require a lot of communication. <clears throat> um, you know, at Global Force, we have human applications that leverage crowdsourcing and foster connection. So I didn't know if you could share some sure. stories related to that. Yeah, sure. Um, so, again, let me let me go back a little bit before looking forward. So one of the primary reasons hierarchy, formal hierarchy, let me be clear, formal hierarchy has existed as far back as we can look in, 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 in uh, human civilization is because until the last 20, 30 years, information was incredibly difficult to assemble and, and transmit. So the most efficient way of doing that uh, historically was to have a hierarchy. So you'd have, let's say, 10 frontline individuals who would you know, give their information to a boss, a manager, uh, who would consolidate that information. And then the next level, you'd have 10 people who would consolidate that information and they would pass it up. So in that environment, it was literally true that only the person at the top had the whole picture. Today, of course, information is very easy to move. You can give everyone across the organization detailed data on performance, on customer sentiment, uh, uh, and, and so no longer do we need a formal hierarchy to consolidate uh, and, and uh, make sense of information. So that has huge implications, number one. Number two, in that traditional hierarchical model, most of the communication flows were vertical. And so again, until just a few years ago, employees working in different geographies, different functions, different departments, would have been mostly oblivious of what their colleagues were doing. And they relied on leaders, managers, not only to consolidate the information, but then to decide where and how you needed coordination. So we have these two units working on something similar. We better create uh, some common policy or we create a task force across them or something else. But, but you simply didn't know where you might have Sorry, you, you simply didn't know if you were lower down in the organization where there might be value in collaborating horizontally across your organization. Now, when you can share information, this becomes quite uh, easy to see. Uh, so one of the companies that's really been a leader here is the Mexican cement company, Cemex. They're one of the top three cement companies in the world. That business 
for uh, historically was pretty much a local for local business. Each cement factory around the world served a fairly small geographic area. But Semex has built, uh, I should say, they, they were built by employees, but Semex now hosts several thousand self-organized communities that have come together around all sorts of cross-unit problems, around energy use, around environment, around marketing, around global account management. And so you have these lateral communities that are solving very complex coordination problems that historically would have been solved you know, up the chain of command somewhere. And of course, the, the dilemma with the old hierarchical model is uh, if, 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 if a, a, a potential internal conflict or a potential coordination opportunity has to get escalated up several layers for somebody to say, well, how are we going to handle this? Where do we need to harmonize or where do we need to have a common policy? That puts a limit on the amount of coordination you can do because those senior leaders have only limited bandwidth. Now, when I can connect people laterally and who can very quickly see opportunities for internal collaboration, you dramatically expand the opportunities to see and exploit uh, places where uh, collective action can create value. So, you know, I think <laughs> I think I would say two things there. One is, as, as is often the case, the pace of technology moves much faster than the pace of organizational innovation. So in most companies, their internal efforts at uh, uh, social media, at creating social platforms, those efforts are still fairly cursory. And I've sometimes described this, you know, every, every company now, most companies have some kind of internal, uh, you know, social web uh, based on uh, common platforms that may be called Chatter or Yammer or, you know, there are many different vendors. But to a large extent, this is just a thin skin of social media stretched across the carcass of bureaucracy. That little has actually changed in where decisions get made, on who has the power to allocate resources, who has the power to hire and fire. And so it's, it's you know, because, you know, if you really play out, if you really start to say, where does this social technology lead? It leads to a, 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 a complete disintegration or replacement of traditional formal hierarchy. And that, for I think a lot of leaders, is just still too scary to contemplate. Um, and, you know, for both operational reasons and for personal political reasons. So I think we have a long ways to go there. And so far, again, I am not an expert at the intersection of, 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 of technology and HR. I certainly, you know, I, I, I know a lot of amazing things are happening in terms of recruitment uh, and in terms of, you know, uh, kind of self-serve uh, benefits where people, you know, we're, we're building sophisticated internal HR portals where people can go to manage their career paths and to you know, uh, register uh, uh, complaints or ask questions. But I think the real impact of social technology has, you know, we're, we are, you know, at mile three of, you know, a 26 mile marathon. Um, to give you an example. Still a long way to go. Doing, yeah, we have a long way to go. To give you an example of what we're doing, and unfortunately I cannot uh, tell you the specific uh, company, but uh, 
few years back, I got very frustrated because most of the social technologies that I could see being rolled out in companies were either what I would call uh, projectware. So they were ways for teams to manage documents, uh, calendars, and communication around project work, which of course is valuable. Uh, or it was, um, um, uh, you know, kind of classic social media where, you know, people could communicate with peers around the world and share thoughts and self-organize into small uh, teams and communities around issues they cared about. And, and that's highly valuable as well. What I didn't see, though, was, or I, I saw a few attempts to use social media to bring people together to solve complex organizational challenges. So it was either a way to be very blunt, it was either a way of uh, increasing the productivity of teams, because most of that, most of those project, most of that project where is simply, it's, it's like Microsoft Office for teams in the same way that 30 years ago, we had spreadsheets and PowerPoint uh, decks and, uh, you know, word processors to, to increase white collar productivity at the level of individual. Now we have project where that increases the productivity at the level of teams that are using Slack or whatever it may be to, 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 to work better, uh, you know, across their teams. So you either saw that or you saw, you know, the kind of internal uh, um, uh, social media that is, you know, some combination of Facebook, Twitter, and so on. Um, so we built a platform um, starting uh, about almost a decade ago uh, that would allow thousands of people to come together to solve complex problems. One of the first places we used this, we ran a project for CIPD in Europe. Uh, that's the largest uh, professional uh, association of HR leaders outside of the United States, uh, uh, based in the UK, but it's a global, uh, global group. And we invited 1,700 HR leaders together online to ask, how do we hack the HR function? And uh, in that case, we were trying to hack it around the problem of building organizations that are more adaptable uh, and uh, um, uh, more, more, more resilient. Uh, but we were able to engage 1,700 people in a problem-solving effort. Well, I, I'm happy to, to go deeper if you like, but that just wouldn't have been possible before. And now we're doing this inside of organizations. We did a project for uh, the North American division of Adidas, the German-based uh, uh, sportswear company, where we asked uh, more than 3,000 employees to hack the management model, including HR. And in that case, the, the, the focus was around innovation, but the question was, we, if, if we want to be more innovative, what would you change? And it wasn't simply um, uh, you know, asking people for an uninformed opinion. We had built a MOOC, a, an online course, where over uh, eight weeks, each week, we introduced a new uh, kind of pro-innovation principle. We said, if you want to build an innovation company, you have to have a way of creating genuine entrepreneurship, ownership, and upside in a large company. If you want a truly innovative organization, you have to be able to create slack. You have to create time and space for people to innovate. Uh, you have to value curiosity and diversity. So each week we would uh, uh, throw out one of these principles. We'd give them examples from, you know, leading companies. And then we asked 3,000 people if, if we were serious about this, if we were serious about openness or serious about internal entrepreneurship or, or experimentation, 
what do you change in the way we hire, develop, uh, compensate, motivate, allocate, plan? And over that uh, uh, period of eight weeks, we had more than 8,000 suggested hacks. And then we had a simple way of asking people to evaluate their, 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 the hacks from their colleagues. And so we had uh, more than 9,000 uh, peer reviews. Uh, and obviously, very quickly, the best ideas rise to the surface. And we turn those into uh, pilots or experiments, and off you go. But, uh, you know, so today, you know, and I, and I think, by the way, the implications of this are profound. You know, I my my view is that in the future, every change program will of necessity be socially constructed. You know, if you want to change anything deep and complicated in an organization, the last place you start is with the EVPs. The last place you start with head of HR, head of planning, you start with the users, the people every day who are there trying to create value, trying to deliver products and services. This is the the first principle of design thinking is you start with the users. And the users are definitely not the people at the top. And my experience is when you, you know, teach those people first and you, 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 you help them, you know, learn from the best and get smart about whatever issue. And then you ask them what changes. You get uh, solutions that are simultaneously both more practical because they're not designed in a vacuum on some you know, on, on some Olympian height, but are also more radical because they are free often from a lot of the, uh, of, you know, the dogma or the orthodoxies that, that, that we have at the top. And so I think if you want change that is fast, if you want change that is embraced, if you want change that helps you get ahead of the curve, it has to be socially constructed. So my, my dream is that within a year or two or three or let's say 10 at the outside, you will never hear anyone again talk about change that cascades. That will just simply be like nonsensical. Uh, it's as nonsensical as thinking about social change that cascades. Right? When, when was the last time that change, you know, environmental change or, or change in equal rights or change in any social sphere cascaded from the bureaucrats down to citizens and ordinary individuals? Never. It, it goes up. And somehow, insanely, in our organizations, we've expected it to go the other way. And the, the reality is virtually every change program that starts t- top down is a catch-up program. Because by the time an issue gets big enough and complicated enough to be seen, noticed at, at the top, you're already on the back foot. So that was part two of our three-part interview with Gary Hamill. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that you will join us at WorkHuman next March in Nashville. Visit www.workhuman.com to find out all the information on the speakers, the location. It's going to be a blast. We hope to see you there. So tune in for the next WorkHuman Radio, where we'll be talking to Gary for the final installment of our three-part interview with him. And please join us on Facebook. Twitter, LinkedIn. We have a LinkedIn group. It's the Work Human Community Forum. Just check it out. Hope you join us and hope you join the movement. Work Human Radio is brought to you by Globoforce, pioneers of the Work Human Movement. Globoforce helps make work more human for millions of people and organizations worldwide. Learn more by visiting Globoforce.com and join the Work Human Movement by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and the Work Human Community Forum on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening to Work Human Radio.